Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When 21-year-old Shannon Christian and 23-year-old Christopher Newsom didn't show up for their best friend's birthday party in Knoxville, Tennessee one Saturday night, their friends knew right away that something was wrong. The couple loved to socialize and had been about to make their way to the party just an hour earlier. So where were they, and why were they not answering their phones? Less than 72 hours later, Tennessee would be left reeling from not one, but two of the most horrific torture slayings in its history. This is Monsters. Shannon Gale Christian was born on April 29, 1985 in Nacogdoches, Texas, where her parents lived with her older brother, Chase. Shannon and Chase were especially doted upon as their parents had been told they would never have children. When Shannon was 12 years old, she moved with her family to Knoxville, Tennessee, where she lived a perfectly middle-class upbringing surrounded by friends, family, and a strong community. Her childhood was loving and stable, and she was close with both of her parents, but especially her mother, Dina. Shannon was always a fun-loving and gentle girl who could light up a room. She had lots of friends and was the one they all ran to with their problems as she was a great listener and offered level-headed advice. Shannon loved people, and she wanted to understand more about what made people tick, and so naturally, when the time came to go to college, she chose sociology as her major. While most kids couldn't wait to get away from their parents, Shannon chose a university which meant she could live at home so she could see her mother every day. There was little that the pair didn't discuss, including Shannon's dream of a beautiful wedding and having exactly four kids when she was ready to settle down. Shannon was also fiercely independent and wanted to make her own way in the world, so while she was studying, she also worked two jobs. In the months before her murder, she proudly saved up enough to purchase a shiny silver Toyota 4Runner SUV as a reliable vehicle to get her to and from classes and work. The vehicle was her pride and joy. She could never have imagined it would become pivotal in her own murder. Hugh Christopher Newsom Jr. was born on September 21, 1983 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Chris's arrival was hugely unexpected for his parents. They had assumed their child-raising years were over, seeing as their other children were all grown and living lives of their own. But he was a deeply loved surprise nonetheless. From day one, he was known by his middle name, Christopher, or more often, Chris. He was a sweet boy and a bundle of energy from the moment he awoke until his head hit the pillow. From an early age, Chris loved sports, and he was particularly talented at baseball. He also loved to make things with his hands, and when he was old enough, he took up woodworking and began making gifts for his family and friends. 
When Chris reached his teenage years, he decided to train to become a motorcycle mechanic given his personal interest in motorbikes. But it didn't take long for him to feel the pull back to using his hands to create and he left his job to study carpentry professionally. As an adult, Chris continued to enjoy sports and the outdoors. He played baseball, golf, and tennis and loved to go fishing whenever he had the chance. But it was Chris's kindness that left the biggest impression on others. He was the first to go and talk with someone who was being left out or bullied. In high school, he asked the dateless homecoming queen to the dance so she didn't have to go alone. And like Shannon, he was the first person his friends called for help or advice. In 2006, when Shannon was 21 and Chris was 23, they were introduced to each other after their parents met through mutual friends. The pair hit it off right away and began to spend all of their spare time together. Chris talked about Shannon any time he got and Shannon did the same. Their dates were usually spent outdoors and one of their favorite pastimes was to play a round of golf together, talking endlessly during the long walks between holes. Shannon had grown up with golf and after years of following her dad and brother around the course, she had decided she wanted to play too. She was a great match for Chris on and off the green, and as their relationship became more serious, they began to talk about getting married and having a family one day. After a couple of months of dating, Chris took Shannon home to meet his parents, and they too agreed the pair brought out the best in each other and had a bright future together. It was a future that would be stolen from them both in the most horrific way. On the evening of Saturday, January 6th, 2007, Shannon and Chris had plans to go out for dinner together and then attend a close friend's birthday party. Shannon drove to a friend's place to get ready for the date while her friends prepared for the party. She packed her outfit into a bag and drove to the Washington Ridge Apartments and left her forerunner in the designated parking spot. The plan was that Chris would meet her there and they would go to dinner and her friends would head directly to the party. After dinner, Shannon and Chris would head over to join the celebration. At 8 p.m., Shannon's friends left and waved goodbye, promising to catch up with her later on. Not long after Shannon's friends left, Chris arrived to collect her. He was running late as he had dropped a friend off at the same party on his way to pick her up. He was apologetic, but Shannon was frustrated that her plans were already running behind schedule. Still, they were both forgiving types and after sharing a few tense words... Shannon got into the driver's seat of her SUV and Chris came around to the window and embraced her in a heartfelt hug. All was forgiven. This moment of affection would be the last good thing that Chris and Shannon would ever experience, but theirs would not be quick and painless deaths. The following hours of their lives would be filled with pain, torture, and horrors the likes which Tennessee had never experienced before. On the morning of January 7th, Shannon's mother, Dina, awoke with an uneasy feeling. When she checked her daughter's room, she found that Shannon hadn't returned home the night before as planned. On Dina's phone were a number of missed calls from unknown numbers, but Dina wanted to check on Shannon before following up on the calls. But no matter how many times she called her daughter's phone, it went straight to voicemail. It was then that Dina rang back some of the unknown numbers. To her surprise, the call was picked up immediately and the person on the other end identified themselves as one of Shannon's friends from the party the night before. What they shared worsened the growing sense of unease, which had been a constant companion since Dina awoke. At the party the night before, the couple's friends had been surprised when Shannon and Chris didn't turn up as expected. 
There was no way the two of them would just not show up for the birthday celebration, and it was even less likely that they wouldn't tell anyone their plans had changed. When friends called and texted the pair, they got no response. They had a sense that something was wrong, so at 11pm, two of Chris's friends went back to the apartment where the couple were due to meet up. In the parking lot, they found Chris's pickup truck, but there was no sign of Shannon's silver forerunner. With this information, the friends knew something had gone wrong after the couple had left for their dinner date. It was then that they tried to get in touch with Shannon and Chris's parents. Not long after that call, Dina received a message from Shannon's employer saying that she had not turned up for work. This is when Dina knew something was very wrong. The sense of unease turned into dread and Dina decided to call Chris's parents to let them know the pair were missing. Dina told them everything she knew and together they agreed it was time to contact law enforcement. But as often the case with missing persons, they were told that the pair needed to be missing for more than 24 hours before a missing persons report could be filed. They would have no help from the police until that time had passed. I say this every time and will continue to say it. There is no rule anywhere in the U.S. that says you have to wait any amount of time to report someone missing. The sooner you start looking for a missing person, the better, so waiting is actually the worst option. Police tell people this as a means of reducing their workload because it is true that most missing persons return within 24 hours. The problem is that, in trying to weed out those cases, they are often giving people who have been kidnapped a death sentence. If you report someone missing and the police tell you to wait, refuse, and continue to demand to talk to a missing persons investigator. This one simple action sealed the fate of two innocent young adults. With no other choice, the families took matters into their own hands and began a search of the area surrounding the Washington Ridge Apartments parking lot. They also set up a phone tree and made contact with the couple's friends, acquaintances, and local hospitals. While the families searched anxiously for Shannon and Chris, a local railroad employee made a horrific discovery. Just after midday on Monday, January 7th, the charred body of a young adult male was found on the railroad tracks. The body was in poor condition, given that it had been burned, but one thing stood out amongst the blackened remains. A pair of bright blue eyes, just like those of 23-year-old Christopher Newsom but with no identification found on the body, the remains were removed from the railroad for autopsy. Neither Shannon nor Chris's families were aware of the discovery of the body on the railroad tracks, and so they continued their desperate search. Despite receiving no help from the police, the families had been able to persuade Shannon's cell phone provider to release her phone records and geolocation data. These records revealed that her phone had last pinged at a Cherry Street phone tower. With nothing else to go on, the family moved their search to the Cherry Street area, just six miles away from the apartment building where the couple had last been seen. The area surrounding Cherry Street is known as a high-crime area. It was a place you wouldn't visit unless you lived there or were seeking to buy something less than legal. At around 2 a.m. on the morning of Monday, January 8th, a little over 24 hours after the pair hadn't shown up for their friend's birthday party, searchers discovered Shannon's abandoned forerunner on Cherry Street. They immediately knew something was wrong when they looked inside. Her vehicle had been stripped of anything even remotely personal to Shannon. 
Her stickers were gone from the windows, and a teddy bear and photographs she kept on her dash were missing as well. Also absent were her phone charger and the iPod she left in the car for music. But that wasn't all that the vehicle revealed. The seats in the car were pushed back so far that there was no way Shannon could have reached the pedals, and sitting in between the driver and passenger seats were a pack of cigarettes despite neither of the missing couple being smokers. On top of that, the footwells were covered in mud. The car was Shannon's pride and joy, and she kept it meticulously clean. There was no way she would have let it get into such a state. Both families knew then and there that something terrible had happened. They called the police again, and this time their concerns were taken seriously, though that might have been because the magical 24 hours had passed. By this time, it was too little too late, and their delays had already cost two young lovers their lives. While Shannon's forerunner was transferred to the lockup for processing, the body from the railroad was telling a story of its own. The remains had been found wrapped in a comforter with a sweatshirt tied around the head. There were no shoes on the man, and what was left of the skin on his feet was covered in mud. Multiple bullet wounds were found on the head, neck, and torso. It was also clear that the man had been raped. While the autopsy found semen inside of him, the fire had destroyed the possibility of DNA being extracted from whoever had left it. Within hours of arriving on the autopsy table, the body was identified as belonging to Christopher Newsom. His parents were informed of the discovery, but the fire had caused such devastation to Chris's body that his parents were advised not to view his remains. Instead, their final memory of their precious boy was of him inside a body bag. With the discovery of Chris's body, both families had confirmation of their worst fears. Their loved ones weren't coming home. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now that police had Chris's body in the abandoned vehicle, the search for Shannon kicked into high gear. Her forerunner was re-examined in the hopes that they would discover something that led them directly to Chris's killer and, more importantly, to Shannon. And when I say re-examined, I mean examined by police investigators since the first examination was by civilians since the police chose not to get involved in the missing person's case. They never expected that what they would find in the car would lead them right to the killer's front door. Tucked in between the seats, investigators found an envelope with an address printed on the front. 2316 Chipman Street was just two blocks away from where Shannon's car had been found and less than six miles from the apartments where the pair had last been seen. The envelope also contained fingerprints which were quickly identified as belonging to Lamarcus Davidson, whose address was the same Chipman Street residence from the envelope. When a background search was run on Lamarcus, Officers found that he had recently been released from prison after serving five years for carjacking and aggravated robbery. Investigators knew right away that there was a high likelihood that Lamarcus was involved in Chris's murder and Shannon's disappearance. But they couldn't understand how two middle-class young adults had crossed paths with a violent offender on what should have been a normal night out. 
On Tuesday, January 9th, police approached the rundown rental home on Chipman Street. The area was mostly industrial, with just a few residential houses located on the street. There was no answer to the door, but with reasonable cause to believe Shannon was being held inside, authorities forced entry into the house. What they found inside would reveal a crime so horrifying that even seasoned investigators would remain traumatized for years to come. Inside the house, police found a number of items which confirmed they were looking in the right place for Shannon. The iPod that was missing from her car, her purse and shoes, Chris's baseball cap, the same one he was last seen wearing, and his driver's license. However, their search would turn up something else infinitely more gruesome. When the trash can in the kitchen was opened, a dirty white sheet was revealed. Beneath that was a bundle of trash bags wrapped around something suspiciously large. When officers cut through the layers of plastic, they were appalled to discover the remains of Shannon Christian. She had been discarded in a bin like nothing more than a piece of trash. The house was immediately cordoned off, and Shannon's family were advised that their much-loved 21-year-old daughter would never be coming home. Just like Chris, Shannon's remains told a story much more than murder. Her body was a roadmap of torture, desecration, and suffering. Inside her plastic tomb, she was wearing only a camisole and sweater, and her skin was marked with blood, bruising, and deep gashes. But unlike the fire which had destroyed the DNA on Chris's body, Shannon's injuries held an abundance of evidence. Semen was found on her clothing and in her body cavities. The same fingerprints found on the letter in her car were found on the trash bag she had been stuffed into and throughout the house. Alongside the personal items, investigators also found shell casings which matched the bullets used to kill Chris. While they awaited DNA results of the samples taken from Shannon's remains, a manhunt got underway to track down Lamarcus Davidson, who was now the main suspect in both of the brutal murders. What they didn't know at that stage was that Lamarcus hadn't acted alone and that no less than five people had the opportunity to save one or both of the young couple's lives that day and to spare them from the torture which would be their last living experiences. When investigators secured phone data for Lamarcus's cell, they identified a number of calls between him and a man named Eric Boyd. A bolo was put out for Eric and that day officers stopped a vehicle he was driving. They asked Eric to tell them where Lamarcus was, but he denied even knowing the man, let alone his whereabouts. When officers applied a bit more pressure and indicated the crimes which they were investigating, Eric's story changed and he told them he wasn't about to do time for someone else's crime. He told the officers that Lamarcus was hiding out in a building the two of them had robbed the same day Shannon and Chris had been taken. He provided directions to a vacant house with a for sale sign in the front yard. When officers entered the house, they found garbage everywhere with empty food wrappers and McDonald's bags covering the floor. They also found clothing, a cell phone, binoculars, and a pistol. Sitting pretty in amongst the filth was Lamarcus Davidson. He was immediately arrested for murder and taken into the station for questioning. It would later be revealed that Lamarcus was wearing Chris's Nike shoes at the time of his arrest. The stupidity of criminals never does get old. Over the coming hours, the man told officers no less than five different versions of the events leading up to Chris and Shannon's abductions, torture, and murders. First, he claimed to have left the house on Chipman Street and had no knowledge of either of the victims or what had happened to them. 
He then told officers that some men had come to the house and told him that they had carjacked two people and tied them up in the back of the car outside. Lamarcus said he saw the victims in the car and told the two men he wanted nothing to do with it and left the house to smoke marijuana. When he returned 20 minutes later, Chris was gone, but Shannon was still tied up in the living room and she told him she did not want to die. He then took her forerunner and used it to deal drugs in the neighborhood before wiping it down and abandoning it. But he absolutely did not rape Shannon and had nothing to do with her death. The men he pointed the finger at were his half-brother, Latalvis Cobbins, and his best friend, George Thomas. On January 11th, George Thomas and Latalvis Cobbins were arrested for Chris and Shannon's murders, alongside Lamarcus Davidson, who was already in custody, and Eric Boyd, who was considered an accomplice after the fact. But there was one more name that needed to join the list. While the men were being interrogated, they named Vanessa Coleman as also being involved in the torture and murders of the young couple. She was arrested later the same day. Vanessa was just 18 years old at the time, while the men were aged between 24 and 35. It was only once the four men and one woman were in custody that the circumstances leading up to the murders were revealed in any reliable detail. With the forensic evidence piling up, each of the accused blamed the others, and unsurprisingly, they downplayed their roles in the crimes. But they were clear on two things. Lamarcus was the ringleader of the group, and the motive for his crime was that he wanted a new car to run his drug business. Fatefully for Shannon and Chris, her hard-earned forerunner was the perfect vehicle. Latalvis was the first to give a plausible version of events to the investigators. He claimed that he drove with his half-brother and Eric to the apartment complex for one of them to meet with a girl. But when they pulled up outside, they saw the shiny silver forerunner with a girl in the front seat talking to a guy standing outside the car. When the pair were locked in an embrace, Lamarcus and Eric jumped out of the car and carjacked the couple at gunpoint. They ordered Latalvis to drive back to the Chipman Street house while the others drove back in the forerunner with their prisoners. Latalvis claimed that as soon as they arrived back at the house, Lamarcus took the woman into the bedroom and Eric drove off with Chris in the SUV. When Eric came back later, Chris was no longer with him. Latalvis claimed that he never raped either victim. Meanwhile, DNA results began pouring in. Latalvis's semen was found in Shannon's mouth, directly contradicting his claims of innocence, and Lamarcus's semen was found in Shannon's body, on her camisole, sweater, and her jeans found at the Chipman house. Fingerprints from all of the accused littered the Chipman house and Shannon's forerunner. Vanessa Coleman initially denied being involved, but when it became clear the others were doing their best to save themselves, she admitted she was there throughout the whole thing. But her defense was that she was being held hostage just as much as Shannon and Chris and that she had no choice but to play along in the hours of rape, torture, and beatings. Finally, with the DNA and crime scene evidence, investigators were able to piece together what happened to Shannon and Chris in the final painful hours of their lives. With guns to their heads, Shannon and Chris were forced into the backseat of the car and their hands were bound behind their backs. Two of the men from the other car got into the front seats and drove the car to the house at 2316 Chipman Street, just six miles away. Chris and Shannon were dragged into the house by their hair and clothes, and once inside the front door, their feet were bound and gags were forced into their mouths. The killers started with Chris first. 
He was dragged into another room, out of sight of Shannon but not beyond her ability to hear his screams. Over the coming hours, Chris was repeatedly sodomized and raped by several members of the group. Throughout the attack, he remained bound at his hands and feet and had a sock shoved deep into his throat. He was blindfolded with a bandana and had a dog chain tied around his neck. This collar would serve a further purpose when a leash was attached and Chris was dragged like an animal back out of the house the following morning. He was then shoved into the back seat of another vehicle and driven to a set of railroad tracks where he was forced to walk barefoot on the sharp stones. When he was approximately 20 feet from his attackers, he was shot once in the back and once in the neck. Horrifically for Chris, he was not killed by those shots. Instead, he survived long enough to take another shot point-blank in the head. The gun's muzzle was placed above his right ear and its trajectory severed his brainstem, killing him instantly. But Chris's torment was not over yet. His assailants then doused him in gasoline and lit his body on fire, successfully destroying the identities of his killers, but not of the torture they had inflicted upon him. Back at the Chipman Street house, Shannon was fighting for her life. She didn't know what had happened to her partner, but she had a strong will to live. Sadly, such a fighting spirit usually does little to deter monsters from their evil desires. If anything, it emboldens them, and this was the case for Shannon. After having killed Chris, the men returned to the house and set upon her in the most violent way. While Vanessa Coleman held her down in one of the bedrooms positioned on the north side of the house away from the road, Shannon was set upon with such violence that it's a testament to her strength that she survived as long as she did. First, Shannon was stripped down to just a camisole and sweater and beaten repeatedly about her head and body, resulting in severe cranial injuries. She was then tied to a chair and raped in her mouth before she was thrown to the ground again and beaten about her head and kicked repeatedly in her groin. There are simply no words to capture the level of pain that Shannon experienced during those hours. She suffered extensive hemorrhaging to her head and groin as well as deep carpet burns over most of her body. Over two days, she was violently sodomized with a number of unknown objects and brutally raped in her vagina and anus. Some of these assaults were so forceful that she had complete tears through her soft tissue causing internal injuries. But as had occurred with Chris, Shannon's nightmare was far from over. When her attackers were done with her, they had the presence of mind to consider that Shannon's wounds could contain evidence of their identities. And so they took every killer's favorite cleaning product and attempted to destroy every trace of themselves. They poured bleach down her throat and scrubbed her bruised, broken, and bleeding body with it. They even poured it directly onto the raw flesh around her genital area. Shannon was still alive and conscious throughout this horrendous, excruciating process. Despite the pain, she repeatedly begged for her life. After attempting to eliminate the evidence of their involvement, the men hogtied Shannon and taped a small trash bag over her face. They stuffed her body into five large household cleaning bags and discarded her like trash in a garbage can in the kitchen. They covered the bags with old, dirty sheets. Shannon suffocated to death slowly inside that garbage can. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Her autopsy would later describe her rape as extreme and much more than a simple sexual assault, if there is such a thing as a simple sexual assault. Her neck was broken during the beatings and her upper lip had been torn inside where it connected to her teeth. It's not known how long it took Shannon to die, but we can assume that given her strength in surviving the assault, it was a slow and torturous death. Meanwhile, her killers went about their day as if nothing had happened. While she was suffocating to death in a trash can, Lamarcus left the house wearing Chris's shoes and using his cell phone. He visited his girlfriend and gave her Shannon's personal items as a gift. When Vanessa's home was searched as part of the investigation, a journal was found with an entry from January 9th, the day after Chris and Shannon's torture. It read, quote, Last night was one of a kind. We stayed with a crackhead that is cool as hell. It snowed a little bit, but it's already melted. Let's talk about adventures. I had one hell of an adventure since I've been in the Big TN. It's a crazy world these days, but I love the fun adventures and lessons that I've learned. It's going to be a long, interesting year. She literally wrote in her diary that the torture and murder of Chris and Shannon was one hell of an adventure. Lamarcus, Latalvis, and George were indicted on 16 counts of felony murder rape, robbery and kidnapping, two counts of premeditated murder, two counts of especially aggravated robbery, four counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, 20 counts of aggravated rape, and two counts of theft. Vanessa was indicted on 12 counts of felony murder related to rape, robbery, kidnapping, and theft, one count of premeditated murder in relation to Shannon, one count of especially aggravated robbery for Chris, four counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, 20 counts of aggravated rape, and two counts of theft. Eric was initially arrested in connection with the carjacking only and charged with being an accessory to a carjacking resulting in serious bodily injury to another person and misprision of a felony which is basically covering for someone you know has committed a crime. Investigators believed his role was primarily in helping the killers conceal their crimes and provide somewhere for them to hide from authorities after killing Shannon and Chris. With five people in custody and overwhelming physical evidence tying them to the crimes, this should have been the end of Chris and Shannon's story. Their families should have felt some sense of justice when their child's abusers and killers were sent to prison. But what they ended up with was far from a clean and tidy conclusion. It took two years for the trials to get underway. In the meantime, a number of motions were heard to have the trial location changed due to the intense media coverage of the case which the defense argued would influence the jury. So Judge Richard Baumgartner allowed George and Latalvis's trials to have juries from nearby Davidson County in order to avoid any bias. A number of other motions to dismiss and change the venue for the trials were sought. All the while, Chris and Shannon's family were trying to process their grief and fight for justice in their names. Eventually, the prosecutors for Vanessa and Latalvis announced that they would be seeking the death penalty. 
At one point, Judge Baumgartner warned Chris's family that they could be banned from proceedings after they called Lamarcus's lawyer a jerk. When you hear Lamarcus's defense, you'll agree that jerk is the understatement of the century. Eric Boyd's trial began first. He was the only person involved in the crime that was not accused of murder. His defense was that he only found out about the murders after they had occurred and therefore held no responsibility for what had been done to either of the victims. He was found guilty and sentenced to a maximum of 18 years. Next up were the trials of Latalvis, Lamarcus, and George. Disgustingly, the main defense for all of the accused was that Shannon and Chris were willing participants in their torture and murder. Lamarcus's defense was that Chris and Shannon had driven themselves to the Chipman house to buy drugs while Shannon had consented to having sex with them. He said everything was going well until George, Latalvis, and Vanessa turned up and began to beat on the couple. Because of this repulsive defense, the prosecution was forced to defend Chris and Shannon's characters. While toxicology reports showed that Shannon had no drugs in her system, Chris showed a level of marijuana that the medical examiner stated demonstrated occasional use. Still, the defense claimed that they were in the area seeking drugs and therefore got what was coming to them. The level of damage to Shannon's body proved that there was simply no world in which she would or could consent to intercourse which involved such torture. But the defense wouldn't let up, and they said that semen found on the crotch area inside of Shannon's jeans proved that she was a willing participant because she must have put her jeans back on after intercourse. Because it's impossible to either A, get semen inside of jeans any other way, or B, force someone to put their pants back on after being raped. Moving on. The juries in all three trials sided with the victims and all three men were found guilty of most of the crimes they were charged with. Latalvis was sentenced to life without parole. Lamarcus was given the death penalty for the murders and 80 years for the associated crimes, and George was also sentenced to life without parole. In his sentencing remarks, Judge Baumgartner stated that what was done to Chris and Shannon was, quote, one of the most incredibly outrageous, cruel, and inhumane cases this court has ever seen. How people can engage in this type of conduct is just unexplainable. There really is no sentence great enough to punish you for the conduct you have been convicted of. Shockingly, Vanessa was granted immunity in relation to the carjacking charges in exchange for her testimony against the other accused. But thankfully, the state courts ruled that this could not extend to the more serious charges of rape and murder. In 2010, Vanessa was acquitted of first-degree murder and found guilty of lesser charges. She was sentenced to 53 years in prison. Chris and Shannon's family were present for all of the killer's trials and hearings. During Vanessa's sentencing, Shannon's father commented, quote, For me, personally, you took my baby. You took my opportunity to say yes to a young man one day. You took my wedding dance away. You took my opportunity to hold her child, my grandbaby. Not long after receiving their convictions, all of the killers appealed their sentences. That's somewhat unsurprising and happens in most cases of this magnitude. But what happened next would send shockwaves through the entire state of Tennessee. In 2011, Judge Baumgartner, who had presided over all of the trials, was forced to resign from his position as one of Knox County's three criminal court judges. It was revealed that the judge was having an affair with a woman who worked in the drug court that he supervised. 
That woman was in a position where she was able to secure prescription pills which the judge used to feed his own drug habit. He also bought drugs from convicts who appeared in his court. He admitted to official misconduct and received a diversionary sentence in state court. Given that drugs were involved, the courts determined that his ability to conduct trials was impaired and his judgments were called into question. Later that year, he was disbarred. As a result of the investigation, a number of rulings Judge Baumgartner had made were overturned. This included the convictions and sentencing of George Thomas, Lamarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins, and Vanessa Coleman. But after a series of appeals, the decision to grant new trials was overturned for Latalvis and Lamarcus. New trials were held for Vanessa and George. In the new trials, Vanessa was found guilty of the same charges, but her sentence was reduced from 53 years to 35 years. George Thomas also received a reduction in sentencing, receiving life in prison with parole after 51 years. His initial sentence provided no possibility of parole. Further appeals by both Vanessa and George were denied right up to the U.S. Supreme Court. In yet another twist as a result of his co-defendant's retrials, Eric Boyd was indicted on 36 new counts including first-degree felony murder, first-degree premeditated murder, especially aggravated robbery, especially aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated rape. Between the time when the initial trials had ended and the subsequent retrials had begun, investigators had repeatedly heard statements that Eric was involved in much more than simply concealing the killers after the crimes as he initially claimed. In 2019, Eric faced trial on these new counts with George Thomas testifying against him in return for a reduction in his sentence. Eric was found guilty of almost all the new charges and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. His three appeals against his sentence have since been denied. In 2014, Vanessa Coleman became eligible for parole after having served just seven years. She has since been denied parole twice, most recently in 2020 when the panel determined that she would not be eligible for parole again until the year 2030. But that is not all there is to the story of Shannon and Chris. Their murders became a symbol of an altogether more unexpected narrative. It's one which some might say has deflected attention from the victims themselves. In the months after the murders, bloggers and media critics claimed online that because the killers were black and the victims were white, the story hadn't been covered in the media to the same extent that it would have been if the victims had been black and their killers white. False claims about the apparent mutilation of Chris's and Shannon's bodies were made on a number of sites. These false reports were then used to demonstrate that the media coverage was downplaying the seriousness of the crimes to protect the assailants. I'm not sure about you, but I don't think that what happened to Chris and Shannon needs any embellishment or to be made to sound worse than it is. What happened to them was horrific. It was painful and it was brutal. There are reasons why it has been labeled as one of the worst crimes in the state of Tennessee. And yet, as a result of these false stories, Two rallies were held by white supremacist groups claiming that coverage of the murders was being controlled by Jewish media bosses. One commentator went so far as to blame Chris and Shannon's parents for their murder, stating, quote, If these families had educated their children to be more race-conscious, maybe they'd still be alive. Get the fuck out of here. Police were forced to issue a statement declaring that Chris and Shannon were not victims of a hate crime. 
they had been killed opportunistically by a group of ruthless killers, but they were not targeted because they were white. As for Chris and Shannon's parents, while they agree that the killers must have hated their children in order to be able to carry out such crimes against them, they stated that no one had the right to use their children's deaths to further their own agenda. In Shannon's father's own words, quote, The crime ain't about you. In 2008, the property on Chipman Street where Chris and Shannon were tortured was purchased by a waste collection company. They demolished the house and erected a memorial to Shannon and Chris on the site. A number of foundations and scholarships have been established in their names to support young people with college tuition for the University of Tennessee, where Shannon was months away from graduating. Unfortunately for Shannon and Chris's families, the fact that five monsters will remain in prison for most of their lives does little to dull the pain of losing their children in such horrific circumstances. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.